Turn with me to Psalm 6. Psalm 6. As you make your way there, let us turn to our God in prayer and ask Him to draw near to us as we look at His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your Word is life to us. Your Word is bread to nourish the soul. Your Word is light to our feet and a lamp for our path. And Lord, we pray that You would take Your Word and You would pierce our hearts, direct our steps, cause our minds to understand who You are and how we should approach You in all seasons of life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's read together Psalm 6. This is the Word of God. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Shimoneth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping, with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Thus far, God's holy word, and may he seal his truth to us tonight. Well, since the study of Psalm 3, at least, we've noted two broad things as we've unpacked the Psalms. First, we've seen that while Psalms 1 and 2 what we call the gateway to the Psalter with its principal themes of submission to God's Word and submission to God's Son. While these psalms assume conflict, Psalms 3 and following have thrown us into the conflict. Now, we don't know if every psalm thus far is written in view of David's fight from Absalom, though Psalm 3 certainly was, but enemies are clearly lurking in all of these psalms. And Psalm 6 will only continue in that vein. David won't mention his enemies specifically until verse 7, but trouble is nigh upon him. But then a second thing we noted as we started with Psalm 3, and it's how the editor or the collector of the psalms has set for us a pattern of morning and evening prayers. Morning and evening. Morning and evening. David in Psalm 3 was lying down to sleep and he was waking up in confidence. And then he prayed a morning prayer for God's intervention. Arise, O Lord, and break the teeth of the wicked. And then Psalm 4 flipped to the evening as David exhorted his hot-headed friends to ponder on their beds and not be 
angry that is not be given over to sinful anger. Further looking to the Lord, David went to sleep in peace. And then there was Psalm 5 where David was groaning and crying, and yet he met the morning difficulty with morning prayer. Psalm 5, verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. Well, at least for one more psalm, this pattern continues. Only now we return to the night. And here David is not in a state of consolation. He is rather flooding his bed with tears. Verse 6. However, what should be noted by us in this larger collection is how there's a habit of David. Morning and evening. Whether there's calm or chaos. To go to the Lord in prayer. Whether David rises with groans or he goes to bed with tears, he goes to the Lord. And he's teaching us repeatedly to keep casting our cares on the Lord our God. And that pattern alone raises a question. Brethren, are we adopting this pattern for our lives? Are we regulating every day with morning and evening approaching of God? We heard about it in the Psalm for the Sabbath, Psalm 92, remembering His steadfast love in the morning and His faithfulness by night. That's for worship. But every day, are we treating the Lord like this? Now, Psalm 6 is the first of the seven so-called penitential psalms. It includes famous psalms like Psalm 32, 51, and 130. And these penitential psalms are given that title due to the supposed confession of sin and plea for forgiveness found in them. However, while Psalm 6 has been historically placed in that category of a penitential psalm, there is no explicit confession of sin here, nor a cry for forgiveness. Rather, David, it seems, simply has a sense of sin and a sense that God is bringing down the rod of discipline upon him. And yet under discipline, what does David do? Well, he doesn't pull away from the Lord. Rather, he pleads for grace, for healing, for deliverance, and for a listening ear in his trouble. He's weary of the night of weeping. That's a lyric from him. I'll give you a little quiz. Do you know what that is? I'll tell you later. But think about it. He's weary of the night of weeping. And yet, as he prays, he gains assurance that God hasn't forgotten him. Well, let's see three things as we make our way through our passage together. We begin with affliction in verses 1 to 3. Now, as we begin, I want to make just a quick comment about the superscription, you know, the little title that the, the, the Bibles have above verse 1. I want to remind you that those statements are actually verse 1 in the original language. And it's important that you know that they are inspired, they're authoritative, and they also have things to teach us. This is the fourth lament in a row, which is the largest category of the Psalter. But it's a lament intended to be sung, right? It's given to the choir master, and there's musical accompaniment. Now, at the very least, this should remind us that we should corporately sing through our troubles. And brethren, this is the value of singing the Psalms. There are a few hymns that are laments in a reflection on suffering. But usually Psalms 
have a wholly positive note. And that is simply not realistic of the Christian life. We struggle with sin. We have enemies. We face hard providences. Sickness and death meet us in the way. And in these dark days, we cannot go silent. We must sing in and through the darkness. And that's what these laments in the Psalms teach us to do. And it's why the church has always sung the Psalms because it reflects the life of struggle in this world. Well, David sings through his trouble and he begins detailing his affliction and crying in desperation to God. Note how he starts. Verse 1, O Yahweh, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. Now I want you to notice here that while adoration is the normal way to start prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I've pressed to you this fact of adoration recently, telling us that ordinarily we come before God and we adore Him first. But sometimes, sometimes the affliction of the soul is so acute that you run straight to requests for God's intervention. That isn't wrong. And we should see that and take comfort in it. In this case, the intervention sought is for relief from God's anger. Now, it's not that David is praying against divine discipline generally. He knows the one whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he knows the wise accept the Lord's discipline. But David's conscience appears to smite him. Whatever has happened, Whatever mess David is in, we're not sure. It could be the mess with Absalom. But he acknowledges here it is a mess deserved. As a son of God, he wants discipline, but what he doesn't want is divine anger, judicial burning. Because if God's justice were to be poured out, David would be finished. It's like the cry in Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Yahweh, were to mark iniquities. Adonai, who could stand? Lord, don't give me over to your severity. Don't deal with me as my sins deserve here. Rather, David pleads, verse 2, be gracious to me. Now, if David has sinned, and I think he has, if he's the right object of divine discipline, how can he just plead for grace in view of his sin? Lord, just give me grace. Forget about my sin. Just give me grace. Well, again, as we've seen repeatedly, David prays this way because he knows his God. Do you remember the episode in David's life where David pridefully numbered Israel? And then a prophet came to David to tell David that what he had did displeased the Lord and he needed to choose his discipline. It would either be three years of famine or three months of destruction by his enemies, or three days of pestilence. What did David choose? He sort of didn't choose. He said he didn't want to fall into his enemies. Rather, let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is great. And David has the same perspective here. There's mercy only in the Lord. And twice in verses 1 and 2, David calls to the Lord, all caps, Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God who is gracious and merciful. He's the God who is slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love. 
He's the God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So David comes to the God with whom there is forgiveness. And he approaches the Lord believing that there is grace found with Yahweh. It's not that David is laying claim on that grace as though he deserves grace. No man does. But here's what he knows about God. God is a God of grace. He abounds with it. Brethren, that's who he is. Even under the rod, even while David is experiencing the consequences of his own sin and facing discipline, David is praying that he would not face full justice, that God would not deal with me as my sins deserve, that God would rather show His grace. And David doesn't explain here how it's possible for a sinner experiencing God's discipline to yet be rescued from divine anger. He knows it has something to do with God's covenant, with the sacrifices that the Lord has provided to propitiate His wrath, to turn His wrath away. But David assumes this and he hastens to God for mercy. Well, brethren, this should be a model to us. None of us deserve grace. And when we're dealing with God's affliction of us in the face of our own sin, we don't deserve relief or help or forgiveness. But God, on the basis of no merit in us at all, is willing to give us relief and to draw near with His deliverance. Now, why would God do that? It's because of who He is. He's a God of steadfast love. He loves us. Do you remember the, I've mentioned this to you, the little portion of the screw tape letters where one demon's talking to another demon describing God's love of His people? He actually loves the little vermin. The demons are amazed that God would love us. You should be amazed too. I don't even like myself most of the time. But the Lord loves us. And not only that, in His love, He's given His Son to satisfy His justice against us for sin. We have a Lamb of God to take away our sin. So we have a way to the throne of grace even when we're being disciplined. And that way has been opened by mercy. How does the hymn writer put it? William Gadsby, mercy speaks by Jesus' blood. And brethren, to whom else shall we go? Job 13, 15, Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. Is that your attitude? Because you know your God. Well, David begins describing his afflicted soul to the Lord and he assumes something else about God as he conveys his pain. Look at verse 2. Be gracious to me, O Lord, O Yahweh, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Why tell Yahweh of the emotional and physical suffering that he's experiencing? Suffering brought by God's own hand because of David's sin. Well, it's because David assumes that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. David has stumbled. David is tasting the consequences. But David does fear God. Further, his pain 
conveyed to God in humble dependence, David knows, will stir the compassions of the Lord. Because again, he knows what God is like. Our God is not cold, austere, hardened, uncaring. He doesn't say, that's what you get to His people. He doesn't say, go ahead and cry. Go ahead. You shouldn't have done that stupid thing. As if He's mocking us in our pain. Yes, it's true we shouldn't violate God's law, but even when we do, even when God brings the rod, He's still tender toward us. There's a number of episodes in the Bible to see this, but it's striking really in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 10, where God's people have been doing what they do in Judges. Sin and sin and sin and sin some more. And the Lord gives them over and He tells them He's not going to listen to them anymore hands them into their enemies. He leaves them under the assault of enemies. And then we read this really striking statement, Judges 10.16. Yahweh became impatient over the misery of Israel. He watched them suffer and He couldn't take it anymore. He had to intervene. Or Hosea 11, verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm. David believes that about God. So he pleads his pain. Lord, see, I'm languishing here. I'm withering. I'm weak and feeble and hurting. My bones, the very core of me, the strongest part, are dismayed as though they're melting away. O Lord, I have no vitality, no energy, no strength. And though this is a poem, and I think figurative language is being used, the contrast of troubled bones in verse 3, a troubled soul, suggests physical and spiritual pain. David may be sick, or his sense of sin may be such, overwhelming him that he's actually physically depleted under the discipline of God. Do you recognize, brethren, that you can have violent inner anguish that actually affects you physically. There's a relationship between body and soul called a psychosomatic unity. What's going on in your soul affects your body. And that could be because of disappointment. It could be because of grief. Or here, it could be because of sin. Yet under sin, David is not running to illegitimate comforters to numb his pain to alcohol, to immorality, to distracting diversions, and he isn't just taking a pill. He's going to the Lord. And is that what we've learned to do? To pour our hearts out to our God because we know He's a caring Father who pities us, who's kind to us, who delights to pardon sin and give us good gifts. And then finally, under this heading, David cries, verse 3, while I'm dismayed and terrified and rocked in body and soul, but You, O Yahweh, how long? How long what, David? He doesn't even finish the sentence. His emotions are so raw, he can't even complete his thought. You ever felt like that? You're so raw, you can't even formulate an idea. It's just, Lord help, or how long? How long is this going to continue? How long will I feel this way? How long will I be distant from you? How long is affliction going to swallow me? How long until relief comes? The design of God's chastisement of David was no doubt to humble him, 
to lead him to repentance, but it's to drive him to the Lord that the way of mercy would be open to him. Because, brethren, to whom does God give grace? He gives grace to the humble. Or are we humbled by our afflictions? Whatever they are tonight, do we see we have only one place to go? And do we hasten there in our affliction? Well, secondly, see with see with me. Arguments. Verses 4 to 7. David's told the Lord of his pain and pled for grace, but now he gets very particular praying for intervention. He makes three rapid-fire requests in verse 4. Turn, or maybe better, return to me. Turn, deliver my life, and save me. I think by saying turn or return, David is saying he's lost all sense of God's favor. The light of God's countenance has gone out. The Lord seems far from him. He has no peace. And the only one who can restore the situation is the Lord. But David doesn't simply want a sense of God's presence. He wants rescue. And again, we aren't given the specifics. But the second request, deliver my life, indicates real peril. David is in danger from enemies. Enemies that the Lord has permitted to prevail. And unless God comes to him, David knows he's doomed. But then notice the basis for these requests. Turn, deliver, and save. Why? Well, he's about to make an argument. Verse 4, look at it again. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of, argument number one, for the sake of your steadfast love. Why should Yahweh save him? It's not because David deserves help. It's not because David is repentant. You don't show godly sorrow for sin and then God owes you something. When you've done all you have to do, you're still an unprofitable servant. The argument is simply because of who you are. Your steadfast love. What is God's steadfast love? It's His devoted love. His covenant love. It's His chesed. It's the one Hebrew word that you have to know. Well, you have to know amen. But you have to know chesed. Love that never lets His people go. It's love that's deeper than our sin and longer than our guilt and stronger than our enemies and higher than our present situation. Yahweh's covenant love is from everlasting to everlasting. And the Lord is unchangeable in that love. What better argument could there be than this? Oh Lord, it's in Your very nature to act lovingly toward me, not because of me, but because in Your covenant, You've set Your affections on me. And Lord, I look to You in Your unchanging love that You forgive sin. You're not a man that You should lie, nor a son of man that You should change Your mind. So I plead You. I plead Your character. Beloved, do You see how practical a right theology of God is? The doctrine of God is not for dusty libraries where academics speculate. The doctrine of God is for the battlefield of life where sorrows sink us and enemies assault us and our own sin assails us. But we lay hold of God because we know who He is. Oh Lord, look at my pitiful state and be who You are to me. 
Display what You've told me about Yourself. Save me because You're committed to me. Friends, do you know God? I know I've asked you that question in this series already. I'll probably ask you again. But do you know God? What is God? God is a Spirit. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being. Wisdom, holiness, power, justice, goodness, and truth. Yes, that's something you can memorize. It's a shorter catechism. Question four. But do you not just say it so you can say you know your catechism? Do you take it and use it to pray? I know who God is. But then David makes a second argument. Verse five. Turn, deliver, save, for... Verse 5, in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, the grave, the realm of the dead, in Sheol, who will give you praise? Now some are thrown for a loop by this language. Does David not believe in the resurrection of the dead? Well, of course he does. David wrote Psalm 16. Yahweh will not abandon my soul to Sheol. He will not let His Holy One see corruption in the grave. That text is quoted multiple times in the New Testament of grounding the resurrection. It's a glorious promise that Christ will enter the grave and see the grave cracked. David has some understanding of life beyond this life. However, he's focused here on his present situation. And I think he's praying in view of the glory of God. He's saying, if I die, if I'm not delivered and my enemies win, Lord, who will praise you? Because I'll be dead and the enemies of God will go out. So save me that I might glorify Your name. Deliver me so I can call doubters to see Your power to remember You. Note that language. There's no remembrance of You in Sheol, right? There's no remembrance of You in death. But I want to remember You. That's a covenant word. That's what we do at the table. In remembrance of me, Jesus says. David wants others to behold the acts of God and to live for God. So David's argument is this simple. While I still have breath in my lungs, I want to remember you and give you praise. Give me the opportunity to do that with your intervention. And why is David arguing like this? What's the assumption? The assumption is, I exist to praise you. My purpose is to magnify God. That's a striking perspective. Is it a perspective that we share? I know we all know at least one of our catechisms, right? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to, what is it? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But do you believe that in your trouble? Lord, remember me, rescue me, deliver me because I exist to glorify You. And I want to sing Your praises. I want to gather with the saints on the Lord's day in the courts of the Lord and I want to shout, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. That's a reason to be rescued. That's an argument. To stand in among the brethren and to tell them of the power of God, how God helped you. That honors the Lord. What a God-centered outlook. So David isn't merely saying, deliver me because I hate my situation. Deliver me because I want peace. No. He's saying, deliver me that I might remember You. Lord, come in my economic distress and deliver me 
that I might use my funds more to Your glory. Lord, come and set me free from sickness that I might serve You, give You more of my energy. That's the sense. And then there's a third argument. And it turns on David's misery. Verse 6, he elaborates more. I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with, with my weeping. David's exhausted. He feels helpless and haggard. And he adds, verse 7, My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Now this is the first time he's explicitly mentioned enemies. But the imagery here is interesting. The idea of an eye wasting away is as though David is losing his sight. Now I think he's speaking hyperbolically here. I don't think he's literally going blind. But his mental distress, his depression, his incessant attacks, the things coming upon him from the foe, and due to his grief, where his eyes are swollen, is telling us he can't focus. When night comes, sleep vanishes because of his sorrow. When day arrives, he can't concentrate. He can't see things clearly. He's locked in confusion and distress. Now why tell the Lord all this? Does God need to be informed about all the details of your feelings as though He doesn't already know? And how is this an argument in prayer? Well, I've kind of already given it away, but I'll tell you again. David believes that God cares to hear the details of my pain, all my sorrow, my sleepless nights. Our Father wants to hear about it. This is an assumption about who God is. That God cares. That our tears matter to God. David will be the author of Psalm 56 that tells us that God keeps our tears in His bottle. That every tear is seen and accounted for by God. When you're silently weeping away from the eyes of your spouse, your children, your parents, or your loved ones, when you feel totally alone in your grief, you're not alone. Because the Lord sees. And not just that, the Lord pities. Our misery stirs the Lord's mercy. Can't we see this in the life of Jesus? When the leper comes to Jesus? Or when Jesus sees the widow at Nain in the funeral procession for her only son? Or Jesus sees the sheep without a shepherd in a mass? What happens? Jesus is moved with compassion. You could translate that. His heart contracts convulsively. And then He acts for the miserable. Well, dear friends, Jesus came, John 1.18, to reveal or to make the Father known to us. What does that mean? It means there's nothing unchristlike in the Father. Is your view of the Father accurate? That all that Jesus is is revealing to you what your Father is like? Jesus, His compassion is just showing you the heart of the living God and He cares about our troubles. It's interesting that David's prayer is filled with emotion and agony, but it's also a rational prayer, as one puts it. He feels and he thinks. He weeps and he reasons. That's biblical prayer. We tell the Lord our feelings, but then we root our requests in the character of God. 
So do we have the ability to do it? Some of us can emote, but can we link our emotions to who God is and plead on the basis of His character? Finally, see with me. Acceptance. In the last section, verses 8-10, to David's mood shifts. And it's not that the deliverance he seeks has already happened, because in verse 10 he'll indicate what shall yet happen to his enemies. That's a future reality. But David is suddenly sure that his enemies will fall. In the present, David has gained assurance that the Lord has accepted his prayer. And he says, verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Now, the first part of verse 8 should sound familiar to you. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Have you heard that before? Do you recognize that biblical reference? We hear those words on the lips of Jesus in Matthew 7 when He's talking about those at the last day who will say to Him, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and this and this? And He will say what to them? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, or all you workers of evil. I never knew you. David's words here as the Lord's anointed king are typifying or foreshadowing the words of the anointed king who will speak judgment to the enemies. Enemies among the very people of God because they're saying, Lord, Lord. But what David says here is not just David going off on his foes. He's speaking as a king in power to drive out his enemies. Yes, David has experienced divine discipline, but that should be no occasion for the wicked to persecute him. Likewise, Jesus will face the sword of justice for our sin. He will be stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. But that gives the evil men no right to mock God's King. Indeed, David, as the King with whom the Lord has made a covenant, is now sure that the Lord has heard him. And it's similar to Jesus Though with Jesus, the suffering is more severe. As Jesus is hanging on the cursed tree, experiencing the blackness of the heavens, still racked with pain, still having the justice of God falling upon Him, He suddenly moves from, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? to, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Hebrews 5.7 tells us that in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who is able to save from death, that is, from its sting. And Jesus was heard. David here is heard. And the Spirit confirms to his heart that his prayer has been accepted. Verse 9, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And what does that mean for the enemies? It means their doom is coming. Verse 10, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now that moment has not yet come, but the Lord will vindicate His people. David's been disciplined. The enemies out to shame David have overreached and they will pay for it. We can think of a particular episode when Shimei in 2 Samuel as David is fleeing the city when Absalom is taking it over. And Shimei is the son of the house of Saul, a Benjaminite, and he's cursing David, calling him a man of blood, throwing rocks at him, throwing dirt at him. David takes it. He doesn't do anything to Shimei. And he just waits upon the Lord to be his vindicator. What happens when David is restored? Well, Shimei comes cowering back to him. And he tells Solomon to put him to the test. You know what Shimei said against me. 
will Shimei really be submissive to the king? He isn't, and Solomon brings destruction upon him in a moment. What's the larger point? It's simply this. God will stand by His people. The Lord may, dare I say, He will chastise us for our sin. But God is for us. And that is our confidence. Why was David's prayer heard? Because the Lord loves him. And then notice what David calls his prayer. Verse 8, the sound of my weeping. It's a really interesting description of what prayer is, isn't it? David is so plagued with grief that he's struggling night after night to articulate his prayer. He's sobbing through the night. And yet he says the Lord heard him. And I think the idea here is what David's heart was seeking while he wept, Yahweh heard that. We've seen this idea before. The Lord hears the jumbling groans of our souls that drives us to weep. And He's the God who puts things right. There's a hymn that says, Soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Do you remember what the hymn was? The church is one foundation. That's it. We sang it this morning. Soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. That's David's focus as he ends. Lord, you're watching my weeping and the cause of my weeping. And whatever is broken, you're going to fix it. The day will come when all the workers of evil will depart from us and there will be no more afflictors. And on that day, every enemy will be put to shame in a moment. Now, David's prayer has not resulted in a change in David's situation. Enemies are still coming against him. But David's prayer has changed David. He clings to God and he rests on God's promise. And brethren, that is what prayer is. Clinging to God, resting on His promise. We go to the Lord who is full of steadfast love, who pities us in our pain, who will right all wrongs, who will overthrow the enemy. And David's model, which Jesus follows, is to take our troubles, even our chastisements to the Lord. Well, may we learn to do so. And may we experience comfort from a prayer hearing and an answering God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you for what you reveal of yourself in the midst of your people's pain. And Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would instruct us in the knowledge of you and your word. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you better. And Lord, we pray that we would put our knowledge of you to use. Lord, make us to be men and women and boys and girls in prayer. Those who seek you in all of our troubles, because we know, O oh Lord, that you care for our souls and your love for us will indeed never cease. Hear us as we pray this, O oh Lord, for we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.